let's turn to Philippians chapter 2, and if you'll remember, uh, what, what we've just kind of walked out of is that, that reality that once we encounter Christ and his love begins to transform us from the inside, we are then equipped to begin to live the life of Christ. And, and, and this is, these two words are very, very important for your own understanding of spirituality. You either have been discipled in a spirituality that calls for uh, imitation of Christ, or you've been discipled under a spirituality that calls us to participation with Christ. And the case that I want to make is, look, in a pinch, whenever we're uncertain of what to do, whenever we are maybe overwhelmed with life, certainly imitation of Christ is not a bad way to go. But long-term, the whole point of us needing the Savior is that we can't imitate Christ. What we need isn't a model that then leaves us inspired but powerless. We need a new life. And so discipleship is not imitation of Christ. It is participation with Christ. And those two paradigms are very different. Because if we're seeking to be discipled from a paradigm of participation, then we're not looking externally. We're looking, we're looking right within why? Because Christ is in you is the hope of glory, that's why. And so I don't want to work real hard and utilize Christian discipline and virtues in order to create the best version of Artie Favre. I want to participate with John the Baptist who said, I must decrease and he must increase. Because at the end of the day, the people who love me and rely on me need more than the best version of Artie Favre. They need exactly Jesus. And I have been given the gift of his life so that if I learn to participate in his life, then that's what's manifested. And guess what? When you have a lifestyle, you don't need to work hard to have discipline because what is equipping you to manifest Christ is already part of the normal rhythm of your life. It's not unnatural. It's not forcing something external upon you. It is the most natural way to live. Living in Christ creates the most peace and integrity for my soul, not because it makes me better, but because it's what I'm suited for. So when we look at the New Testament, particularly these, these strong Christological passages, it's really critically important because we're not just learning about the life of Christ. We're learning and learning about the life of Christ. We're learning about who we are. We're learning about the life that we're suited for. So when we come to a topic like humility, it is a wrong paradigm to say, I'm a filthy, nasty, self-centered sinner who's been contaminated by the fall of Adam, and therefore I can never be humble, but if I discipline myself enough, maybe I can start acting more humble. That's not the paradigm at all. It's to understand, no, humility suits you because that's the life you're created for, and that's the life that sustains and animates you. And the more you live with integrity with who you are, the greater fruitfulness and peace that we'll experience, that, that we experience in our lives. So when we look at this, we're looking at the life of Jesus, but we're looking also at uh, our life as well. So remember, if we look up in verse 4, Paul is referencing this idea that how we are called to live is, is by considering others as more important than ourselves and not looking out for our own interests, but looking to the interests of, of others. And then he ends that with saying, have the same attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. So now here's a transition piece. What Paul is doing, he's saying, let's take a look at how these virtues 
looked in the life of Christ. And in the life of Christ, there was a specific way in which he modeled what it means to consider others as more important than yourself and to look at not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of others. Christ modeled that here, and now he's going to transition into our text. So let's just read this together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a magnificent vision. In the churches I grew up in, if you came to a revelation where you were able to confess Jesus Christ as Lord, then you were saved. And so, Paul writes this ridiculously optimistic vision for us. There's a day that everyone will one day have a revelation of Christ. Every knee will bow. And every, it's not my words, Paul said that, not me. And so that might make us uncomfortable, but just remember Paul said it, not already said it. But that's his vision, is that there's a day when everyone has a revelation of the true identity of Christ. And so that's the vision that captivates our hearts and energizes us, and it's what empowers us to then follow the way of our Lord in the path of humility and self-giving love. So let's look at those, those, those first verses. What I, one of the things I love about this passage is number one, obviously, verse 11, the optimistic vision of what the world will one day be that Paul presents in verse 11 is overwhelming to me. But secondly, the other thing I like about this particular Christological passage is in this one paragraph, in this one passage, uh, Paul basically gives the highlights of the entire narrative of Christ. And what we see here in this passage is the movement of incarnation, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, exaltation, which results in restoration of humanity. We have incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and exaltation that results in restoration. This is what Paul celebrates uh, here in this verse. So let's take a look at this. Verse 5. He begins with this very, very uh, practical instruction, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. 
Now, when he says this, then we have to understand that what's going to follow is not just an expression of worship and it's not just a theological statement of high Christology. It is a picture and an understanding of the very nature of Christ and his mission. And therefore, because Christ is an exact representation of the Father, then we see it as a very crystal clear picture of the heart of our Creator. Like this is the heart from which our life originates. And so, so when he says this, adopt the same attitude of that of Christ Jesus, remember our context. Of course we can say that within any context. If you're getting onto your child and they're lying, you can pull out some good Christian guilt and say, are you adopting the same attitude of Christ? Well, no, he told the truth, great. And, 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 and I use that example because most of us come down to moralizing like that. Like we look to Jesus as a way of kind of moralizing the virtues of his life. And that's fine, I suppose it has its place, but that's not really the point of the narrative. It's, it's the, the point of the narrative isn't just to, 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 to mimic the morals, but to embrace the life. And so when, in specifically, when we're talking about this attitude, what Paul is illustrating is this is what it means to consider others as more important than yourselves. And this is what it looks like when you look out not only to your own interests, but when you look out for the interests of others. This is what it looks like. This is the attitude that Jesus has. And so this is how Jesus considered others as more important than himself. This is how he looked to the interests of others. And then we're introduced to these ideas in verses six and seven who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, that that word instead in verse 7 is very important because it alerts us to the fact that Paul is creating a contrast. On one side is grasping equality with God as something to exploit one's for itself, or on the other side, there is, instead, he emptied himself by, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. So rather than considering his equality with God as something to be exploited, instead, he chose not to do that. And instead, what he did is that he, he emptied himself, He assumed the form of a servant, and he took on the likeness of humanity. Now, this idea is very interesting, and it's very important. And if if, if you've got some time to make a cup of coffee and maybe get a slice of leftover pumpkin pie and a big old double dollop of Cool Whip this afternoon, and you want to make yourself some pie and coffee and get on the Google... You can, you can go into the Google and you can read about all the ink that's been spelt, spilt over these two verses because theologians throughout history have been understandably preoccupied with what exactly does it mean that Jesus Christ emptied himself? What was it that he reduced in order to, to empty himself? Because our concept of Empty is about something that has contents and then it doesn't have contents anymore. So when we say empty, we mean something that was full or partially full is now empty or less or more empty than it was before because it lost something. You subtract by subtracting. Now here is the amazing revelation of this verse is it turns even 
mathematical ideas, which as far as I can tell is about the only consistent principles in this universe uh, I have come to assume at this point in my life. But it even turns that on its head because notice what the apostle says in these verses. This is not subtraction by subtraction. It is subtraction by addition. He didn't become less than God. The reason why he, ex he experiences self-emptying is that he chose to enter into and embrace human limitation. So Paul specifically says that the way he emptied himself is, look, by assuming the form of a servant and by taking on the likeness of humanity. So he was emptied by what he was willing to take up. Does that make sense? He wasn't emptied in the sense that he gave something up. He was emptied because of the depth to which he was willing to identify with the human condition. And it is in what he's willing to acquire that causes him to be emptied, not what he lets go of. So the language here is very, very clear about that statement. But this idea of taking on I, I, I'm trying to listen to my responses, and I didn't put a bunch of Greek words into the sermon notes. If you're curious about it, I will tell you where to go on the Google to find them. But suffice it to say this, this idea of taking on is very important. Because this idea of taking on is not accidental, and it is not uh, casual, and it is not by accident. The verb that is used for this idea of taking on literally means accept with initiative. So if someone's trying to serve you papers or if the mailman's trying to bring you your electric bill, actually the electric bills are fine in the wintertime, but maybe they're trying to bring you your gas bill. This might be something that belongs to you that needs to be given to you, but you may be hesitant to accept it. But think of all those young eyes in just a few weeks when they wake up on Christmas morning. Are children passive about the gifts they receive? I don't know, it's madness in my house, even though they're all in their 20s. I still go to bed at nine on Christmas Eve because at 4.30, 5 in the morning, they start uh, um, squeezing blow horns and all kinds of things to try to get us to wake up. And they're in their 20s. Um, but that is where the receiver is taking initiative to get the gift. I mean, they planned it. I mean, most of the time, I didn't even realize that on days that there isn't an obligation that my children's bodies were, alive, were allowed to be even animated after, uh, before 10 a.m. But on Christmas Day, they would always construct and plan and, and scheme and know the plan for how they were going to get up early and get ready for that morning because there were gifts to be received and they were not going to be passive receivers. They were going to interrupt the convenience of their life in order to create a strategy that would allow them to be very active receivers of gifts. They were moved by their own volition to want to embrace the gift that was given. That's this idea of taking on doesn't mean that it was done with hesitancy or casualness. It actually emphasizes initiative or the volition of the one receiving. In other words, Jesus went out of his way to inconvenient himself so that we could know God's love. This is the model. 
And this becomes a very important challenge for us because we live in a day and time where the mission of God can not only be convenient, it can be like a little vacation. But that's not what is being modeled here. It is not service at a distance so that I can maintain healthy emotional boundaries so I don't get tired or hurt. No, this is an aggressive, I'm reaching out, I'm gonna do this thing and I'm gonna enter into the human condition and I'm gonna journey with them in their suffering. I'm not gonna be a deity that stands above their suffering and tells them to pray to me for release. I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna enter into the journey of their suffering with them so I can be with them both in the release but also in the times of, of, of deepest darkness. And this is the model. And Jesus did, does this willingly and with initiative. He, he chose. He, he did not exploit his privilege of equality with God for his own advantage. This is so important for us to enter into the ancient spirituality of the scriptures because we live in a day and time where it is, it, we can come up with an alternative version of the faith from that of the Bible. And it's very organized and there are benefits for participating in it. And our lives, we can, we, can, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're following Jesus while still living relatively comfortable and convenient lives. Which is fine, I'm not saying God rejects us for that, but I am highlighting it is not what our Lord modeled. He left convenience. He let go of privilege so that he could enter into the journey of suffering with others so that they might know life. He chose to lay that privilege aside. He emptied himself by what he was willing to take on rather than by what he let go. And in doing so, Jesus announces and models that his kingdom looks nothing like the organizations of the world. By assuming, um, because, he, because he took on the form of a servant and he thought of others. Jesus rejected the world's understanding of power, privilege, and authority. He modeled that authority in his kingdom is revealed by laying down one's life for the sake of others. And here's the thing. If this is what Jesus did, then we shouldn't try really hard to do it so that we can imitate Jesus. You need to recognize your, you only work right when you do this. That the life in you that chose to let go of privilege in order to serve others is the life that animates your soul right now. So it is to your benefit to learn what the nature of that life is because the more you make choices in integrity with that life, the more peace and joy it has a ripple effect in the other areas of our lives. But I can't be a selfish person trying to use the Jesus model in order for my own power, privilege, and convenience. That won't work because that's not what he did. He let go of position, title, and authority so that he could enter into the journey of suffering of the human condition. Now, how specifically did Jesus lay down his life for the sake of others? Very simple. He surrendered his privilege by participating in the human condition. This is the model of our Lord. This is the life that is in you as the hope of glory. Godliness is revealed not in what we acquire, but rather in what we're willing to relinquish 
for the sake of others. Because this is what Jesus modeled, and that's the life that is within us. Jesus enters human history not as Lord, but as servant. Jesus enters human history not as Lord, but as servant. The modern church loves to compartmentalize. And in comfortable atmospheres, worship Jesus as Lord. And the atmosphere has to be comfortable. If the weather's bad, or if I ate too much late on Saturday night, I'm not as motivated. So convenience is an important part of it. That's why you're sitting on chairs that have the extra layer of padding than the cheaper chairs we could have gotten. And it's certainly why you're not sitting on a wooden bench. Now, look, I'm not talking at you. I like the padded chairs as well. I'm just saying collectively, it's so important that we have self-awareness and we understand this. We like to worship Lord Jesus in a context of convenience, but rarely does that equally transfer then living as a servant to everyone that we encounter after we leave the building. And we have to understand if that's the case, we're only 50% discipled. I almost said 50% saved, but I'm sure somebody would put me on a heretic list if I said that. But for all practical purposes, it's true. Well, that's great for the hour you're in church, but where is the life of Christ compelling you out of that? Oh, I'll worship there. I'll put it in my worship CD. Well, that's good too. But ultimately, if we want to be discipled holistically into the life of Christ, it means we will have moments of awe and ecstasy when we worship the Lord Jesus, and then we will experience his presence because we are with him suffering with others with whom he suffers. And we are there too. At some point, Jesus leaves the prayer closet, and you should go with him. That's the idea. When he goes, it isn't wait for him to return. It's go with him and touch the lepers as he's touching the lepers. That's what we're intended to do. That is how we practically and functionally experience this truth that we call salvation. He enters human history, not as Lord, but as servant. Jesus practiced humility by joining us in our journey. We in turn practice faith by joining him in his journey. And he's still pursuing that journey. The body of Christ is still tangibly here on earth. Following Christ is a path that requires us to give our lives to God, to which everyone reasonable would probably nod and say amen. But that's only half of it. Following Christ is a path that requires us to give our lives to God, and in turn, God gives our lives to the least among us. Once you give your life to God, you don't get to pick the limitations. Once you give your life to God, guess what? He's actually not interested in keeping it. His plan is then to give it away to another human being or to another group of human beings. That's what he intends to do with your life. He's not collecting us like trophy cases so that he can have a room where he can go down and look, oh, look, here are all my saints. No, he's raising up a body that can continue his work of co-suffering with others so that they might know life. 
That is what Jesus is after. That's what the Holy Spirit is seeking to cultivate in you as you flourish in your maturity in Christ and as you live a life of increasing faithfulness to Jesus. If you give your life to God, his intention is to give it away to the least among us. The theme runs all the way through both covenants of Scripture. If your life belongs to God, then you belong to your neighbor. If your life belongs to God, then you belong to your neighbor. You belong to your brothers and sisters. You belong to your enemies if your life belongs to God. Sorry, but the nature of equality and human rights is different in the kingdom of God. In fact, I wouldn't say that the kingdom of God is equal. There's a higher demand on those of us with privilege than there is on those of us who have less privilege. Him to whom little is given, little is required. Him to whom much is given, much is required. There is an inequality. Those of us with privilege let go of the privilege so that we can serve those who are without our privilege. That's the real justice of the kingdom of God. Oh, equality, you're shooting too low. No, no, I want my life spent in the cause of grace and justice because that's the only way I can walk closely with Jesus. And so that's modeled and that's what we're called to. So how do we respond? Well, get out your pens and papers as I get ready to reveal the four keys to living a life of successful humility without needing to suffer in the process. So get ready. No, because that's not how Christians do growth. That's how people that are using Christianity as a tool for self-improvement, that is how they do growth. What are the principles within the organized Christian religion that empower me to live, that I can follow these steps and live a life of successful blessing? But for the follower of Jesus, the question is not, how do I cultivate that, but how do I tap into the humility that's already been cultivated in me through the presence of God? It is about coming into the awareness of who I am, not trying to change who I am. Those two paradigms will create a radically different culture of spirituality for you in your home. Look at these two verses back to back. Philippians 2.5 that we just read. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 2.16. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. The first step and cultivate the, ap- the attitude of Jesus is to become aware you've already ha- you already have it. Now that is critical. Spirituality and spiritual growth is about living and in increasing awareness of what you've already been given. It is not trying to cultivate virtue that you're already lacking. And in fact, this other model of spiritual growth, do you see? It doesn't begin in faith. It has to begin in unbelief. You have to believe that you lack so that you go out looking for it. The problem is, if you go looking for the God you've already been given, then you can only do so by believing that you haven't been given that God. 
So it requires your unbelief to work that system of improvement. What I am talking about is organic and it requires faith because there's all kinds of evidences in my life that would say I am not a godly, humble person. I can give you example after example and we could call in witnesses that could corroborate my story. I could easily be condemned for being an arrogant, prideful person who doesn't care about the interests of others, but only looks up to his own interests. So in order to begin a path of spiritual growth for me, I don't believe in, I, I, don't, I can't start in unbelief. I gotta start in faith because there's so much evidence that the life of God might not be in my soul. But I accept it anyway. I receive who I am, and then we try to cultivate a rhythm of life that puts us in touch with the reality of who we are rather than just the bombardment of condemnation and judgment that we're giving ourselves and that's existing right up here between our ears. So adopt the same attitude of Jesus Christ because you already have the same attitude of Jesus Christ. The attitude is the fruit of the mind, and you already have the mind of Christ. It just comes down to a question of whether or not your spirituality has taught you to trust that or if it's taught you to distrust that and place your trust on external sources of authority. That's the only question that you have to decide because you've already been given the mind of Christ. The attitude of Christ flows from the mind of Christ and we have his mind. We do not need to discipline ourselves to act humble. We need to discipline ourselves to live from the awareness that we are humble. Because if Christ is in you as your hope of glory, all that is true about Christ is true about you. But there's real estate between your ears that simply can't believe that that could possibly be true. And so your warfare is not a culture war of political and spiritual values. It's a spiritual war that exists right in here and it's a war of faith and unbelief. Whether or not you're gonna trust what seems too good to be true. Hmm. Well, how can we increase awareness of that identity? Great question. One thing you could do is steep yourself in the manifesto of the kingdom of God found in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. And the reason why I say that ad nauseum and will continue to is because you are not reading the description of a life with which you have to compete and strive to become. You're reading about the life that already exists in you. The life of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is already intimately attached to your DNA. And the reason why we struggle is if we are living contrary to the new DNA that God is giving us, we will not be at peace. But as we learn to live in integrity with the new DNA that God has given us, that is when we have peace and harmony because that's what integrity brings. So in addition to reading and meditating on Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we ran out of time two, three weeks ago. I want to re-encourage you to begin the practice of centering prayer. The purpose of centering prayer is simply to remove the distractions, the distractions, the distractions, sometimes distractions, because some of our distractions, distractions are destructive, but Lord, don't let Artie go off on that. Um, but uh, it, it is about having a moment in your day where you move distractions aside so that you can reorient yourself around your real life. 
And that's Christ who is the center. As Charlie Hall sings, we wrap our lives around your life. Why? Because he's wrapped his life around ours. That's why. And so we have to have moments because the greatest sin is forgetfulness. We just forget. You just wake up and start living like a carnal individual that has to rely on yourself. Or I do. And unless I have something in place that makes me reorient my thinking and my mind, then it's very difficult for me to not just go with that flow. So centering prayer helps that. So if you weren't here or even if you were, let's go back over this. You should find a quiet place where you don't be interrupted. This is in the beginning. I am walking into this wonderful place where when I'm in the atmosphere of chaos, now at this point I can take a deep cleansing breath and I can just pull my attention back to Jesus and I feel like now I'm starting to experience like this walking, waking meditation, which makes me think a little something of what, what Paul said about praying without ceasing. That's kind of what it feels like. But in the beginning, quiet is best. So find a quiet place you set aside. Whatever time of the day you can do that. And as I said last time, I, I really can only find that in the early morning hours in, in the rhythm of my life. Sometimes late at night, but then I tend to fall asleep while I'm doing my centering prayer, which is fine too, but I want it to be more than that. Uh, sit with your back straight. That's so you don't fall asleep. I've done centering prayer laying down, prostrate before the Lord, and had visions, but I think they were just dreams. Um, so sit up, and please, if you're starting out, set a timer. You, you don't want to overdo it. I mean, look, set that bar low, baby. Two minutes. You know, are they going to write a song about you in heaven? Probably not. But it's a great access point for you to start your practice of centering prayer and contemplation. Start with 10 minutes or five minutes if you're bold. But you're still a beginner, but that's okay. But set a timer. And the reason why you're setting a timer is because otherwise, in the beginning, you'll get bored and you'll start doing this about every five to seven seconds. Take off your watch. Set your phone on silent. Except for the timer. Put a timer for five minutes. Go to your chair. Centering prayer. Lord, I like to ask the Holy Spirit, is there a word, a sacred word I should concentrate on? I've listed some for you here. Uh, one that's not listed that was interesting before we entered into the last movement of our time of worship. Um, I just felt, because already my mind was going about sermon and meetings this week and anxieties that I have about the church and about my private life and my kids. And I realized even in the midst of this beautiful atmosphere, I needed to begin to practice centering prayer. So during worship, I closed my eyes. I began to move back to that place of centering prayer and, and began to, and, and literally just before Russ sang that last song, began to just repeat the sacred word, surrender. Surrender, that's what came up to my heart, surrender. It didn't make the anxieties go away, but it did muzzle them. And they kind of faded to the background. I know they're still there, but they're in the periphery now. And now I'm in this place of focusing on Jesus and remem remembering that what I want to do is surrender to the new nature of the life that I've been given. And then boom, the Holy Spirit just orchestrates this moment, right? And then we have this song and what was uh, the theme at the end, right before the prayer, was the theme of Surrender. So use whatever word, but don't be surprised if as you get 
grow in this practice, you'll feel the drawing to a sacred word and it will come up again in your day. I've started seeing this happen again. It'll come up in conversations or a song lyric or something that I'll hear that will bring my mind back to that. And that's lots of fun. You know, again, can I prove this is God? No, I might just be an insane person having a great time with my life. But you know what? I'm living a better life than I was when I lived in unbelief and cynicism. So, yes, I tend to interpret as probably the Spirit of God is more intimately involved in the, in, in the flow of my life than I realized. So you say, but, but then what you want to do is, is, that, is that as you relax, you take your deep breath, you say your prayer, but you don't have to keep saying it. It's not necessarily a mantra. It's just a point of discipline. Maybe you use the easiest, most successful one for a lot of folks is Jesus. You close your eyes. Take your deep breath. And it reminds you that the way humanity became animated is because Yahweh breathed his breath into our nostrils, right? So that's why I begin with that deep. Jesus, Jesus. And then slowly, all the stuff starts to fade. And all I see really is this word because I see it spelt out. I don't really see pictures. And pretty soon, my soul is quieted. And now, I'm just sitting before the Lord. And he with me. Nothing, no epiphanies, just the real presence of peace. And then it might be when does that new Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds movie come out and drop on Netflix? Oh yeah, I think, I think we need to do that. Oh, it'd be nice to have hot chocolate. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, Jesus. And Will Ferrell says, all right, maybe later, Artie. And Will Ferrell takes his place in the back. He has permanent residence up there now, by the way. And then I become silent again because the word, the sacred word did its work pushing back distractions. I'm not trying to do a mantra. I'm just trying to get my soul centered on being in the presence of Jesus for just two to five minutes. But those times have extended. And then before long, I began to be reconfronted with truth of who I am by meditating on who Jesus is. When your thoughts wander, use your secret word, and at the end of your time, just remain in silence with your eyes closed just for a few seconds. And then number six is really important. Refuse to judge your experience. There is no such thing as good centering prayer and bad centering prayer. It doesn't exist. There are just those times when you felt nothing, you were just rejuvenated by the silence, and then there were times when Everything was right for the Holy Spirit to drop wisdom and revelation into your heart and it all just falls into place. Now, those are the sessions that keep you coming back for more, I'll admit. But they don't happen all the time. And so I'm not gonna judge it. I'm just gonna go on about my day a little bit more mindful of the life of Christ. Now, as the worship team comes forward and we stand up, there's another version of this that we can practice right in here for the next few minutes. So let's all stand. The other version of this that I like is not in utilizing a sacred word, but in the utilization of breath prayers. What, I use, what we use breath prayers are is that these are prayers 
that can be spoken out loud, I often end up reciting them mentally, but they're prayers, they're, they're, they're prayers that can be prayed in a single breath. Just say your prayer. Or they're prayers that can be meditated upon or um, said in two movements, one when you're inhaling and the other when you're exhaling. I like that because it allows me to temper my breath, which then causes my body to be calm, which then causes my mind to be calm, which then empowers me to more uh, directly focus on the presence of God. And so we practice breath prayers. Here are some of my favorites. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. It's a variation of the Jesus prayer. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Or the longer version, Jesus Christ, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the breath prayer I started out with, and so I tend to go back to that one. Or this is another great one. You just put your hand over your heart, set your timer, take a deep breath, and you just begin to say, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. When I'm broken, this prayer brings me deep comfort. Abba, I'm yours. Abba, I'm yours. Another one of my favorites is found in reading the autobiography of St. Francis of Assisi. One of his traveling companions took note of a story where they drifted off to sleep and they opened their eyes and they saw Francis kneeling down on his knees at his bedside with his arms extended. And he was simply repeating my God, my all, my God, my all. And to a testament of centering prayer, when the traveling companion woke up in the morning, he opened his eyes to see St. Francis kneeling at the side of his bed, arms extended on the bed, just repeating, my God, my all, my God, my all. And that's a man that turned the world upside down. My final one I've been experimenting with is the idea of the name of Yahweh. Because it's a breath. Yahweh. Yahweh. And so you can just literally breathe the name of God about five minutes. So pick your centering prayer, your breath prayer. We'll take 60 seconds. Close your eyes. If you're comfortable, lift your hands. It's just a bodily expression of the internal resolve to surrender all. And whatever you want, take 60 seconds and pray your breath prayer. Jesus Christ, have mercy on me.